0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Colorado is one of the most educated states in the country, ranking high in the percentage of adults who attended college and hold bachelor's degrees. But state funding for higher education isn't what it used to be. Get this, state support shrunk nearly 70% between 1980 and 2011, according to the American Council on Education. The same study says it could dry up completely by 2019. So it's perhaps no coincidence that the revenue public colleges and universities here get from tuition has increased every year since 2007. Well, today we've gathered higher ed leaders from around the state to talk about this, President of Colorado State University, the head of community colleges, the leader of the largest school on the Western Slope, and the former lieutenant governor who made this one of his big issues. But let's begin with the University of Colorado system. President Bruce Benson spoke to me from his office. President Benson, welcome to the program. Well, thank you for having me. According to the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, tuition in Colorado increased more than 57% between 2008 and 2016. I want to say that's adjusted for inflation. What do you tell parents who ask, why are we paying so much for college here?
1: Well, I don't know if that's the right uh, question to ask. I think what you really need to think about is what's happened in this state. When I started here, we were getting... About two hundred twenty-nine million dollars for the entire university from the state. We probably should have been around three fifty to four hundred, just looking at what our peers are getting around the country. But that dropped all the way down to the hundred and forty millions from the state, and now we've worked our way back up to around two hundred. The state's actually planning to put twenty million dollars additional into higher education this year. I'm not totally confident that that's going to happen. Because uh, they've got a lot of constraints out the capital on the budgets this year, the other thing that people don't seem to understand is that a lot of our courses are getting more expensive that people are taking, and It's that people are going into stem sciences, you know engineering, math, and all of that, and compared to say sociology, which is a lot cheaper course to deliver, and what you really need to look at is what happens once the kids get out of school. If your default rate on your loans is at 3.5%, which is about the average for our campuses right now, we are way below the national averages. Now, if you're not defaulting on your loans, that means you have a job and you're paying off your debt. Hmm. So I think things are working in the right direction for us, and it does cost more to deliver this product. So how have you managed this as
0: president of the CU system, knowing that state support has been declining that, that strikes me as a, a big mandate for you to figure out what other funding solutions look like.
1: Well, it wasn't all that tough, frankly, because we just looked at this thing and we said, we've got to go through and we've got to clean this place out. And sometimes a bad budget makes you do what you should have been doing anyway and getting rid of stuff you don't really need. So we we cut our overhead Uh, down our administrative overhead is, I think, 27% lower than our peers. We cut out programs that weren't necessary. We got rid of people that we didn't really really need anymore. And I can go into a lot of other things, but I'll let you ask the next question. I don't hear much more the
0: insistence that the train to the plane at DIA be referred to as the University of Colorado A-Line. The train's been plagued with issues since it debuted almost a year ago, and uh, CU paid $5 million for the naming rights. Is that still regarded as money well spent?
1: Yeah, $5 million is a five-year deal. Now, people say, well, why didn't you take that million dollars to reduce tuition? I did the math one day, and I don't have it handy right now, but I think it is like $7 a credit hour uh, if we were to put that back against it. And, you know, the Denver Post wrote an editorial about it doesn't even connect their campuses. And that is very true. But as I told the head of the editorial page over there, I said, you know, Vince, we're not trying to tell our students, faculty and staff where we are. We're trying to tell all the people that are coming to Colorado who we are and what we're doing. And we've gotten a lot of good marketing out of it. So I'm not unhappy at all with what we're doing.
0: And to the student who says, hey, I'd love $7 off a credit hour, what would you say?
1: If you're in that kind of trouble, I, I would say I'm really feeling for you. <laughs> $7 a credit hour is not exactly a lot of money.
0: CU approved a $142 million stadium expansion in 2013. In February of 2016, the Daily Camera reported that the actual cost will be closer to 166000000 million. You're already in a major conference, the Pac-12. Where does the
1: athletics
0: arms race end?
1: I don't know where it ends. That's a very good question. I don't think anybody knows. But if you're going to be in this this D1 football business, you either get in or you get out. We decided we would get in. I, I think about a game that we played. I think it was probably my first year or second. And it was a night game Thursday night. We played West Virginia. We won the game in overtime. We were the only game on television anywhere in the United States that night. Now, do you think we got a lot of bang for our buck out of that? The answer is you darn right we did. So I think that that is often not thought of as the window into the university, the front door, whatever you want to call it. Hmm. And, yes, we are spending a lot of money on that. We have a great athletic director in Rick George, and he's already raised over $100 million of private money to offset those expenses. And he has not stopped yet. Plus, he's putting in other programs like having concerts. They're doing stuff with apparel. They're doing all kinds of other things to bring more revenue in so we can get this thing totally balanced, and he does have a balanced budget now.
0: Do you have to win a national championship for that to truly pay off, do you think?
1: No, I don't think you have to win one, but I'd like to win another uh. one. I mean, we had a good year this last year. we had had some very bad seasons running together. A lot of coaches changed out a lot of presidents. I mean, there were just a lot of things that happened that made it not a very uh, conducive environment for us.
0: You talked about the balanced budget uh, in terms of athletics there. Do you see athletics as a way to actually wind up doing more than breaking even and, in a way, supporting the academic programs? Is that your goal in the long run?
1: Well, I think it could be, and I think that certainly be a, a a worthy goal. It's probably going to take a little while before it's going to be an a econ- serious economic driver for us. But part of the reason we went in the Pac-12 is not just for athletics. You look at our alumni base, and the old Big 12, and both of these numbers it will be without Colorado. We had 11,000 alums in the base. In the Pac-12, we've got 55,000. So that's the start. Then you look at our research partners, and it's kind of like the Ivy League. These guys all play together, work together, research together. So in the Pac-12, it's much the same. And we have huge research associations with these other institutions. So you do all of that, and then you just start talking about where to recruit your students. We Recruit an awful lot of students, non-residents from California. So that's important. And it's like these basketball players, which we've got a whole lot of those guys coming from L.A., they can play a couple of games at home every year, their home, uh, and still go to CU. So it works out well for us.
0: And it's important to bring in that out-of-state tuition because it's higher tuition.
1: Well, that's right. And we've made the changes a few years ago. The international student population here at, at Boulder, we'll just take, for example, was 4%. And we were the second lowest in the AAU. We passed legislation so we could take that number up to 12 percent, and take them out of the non-resident mix. So it's it played out well for us. The last count I saw, Boulder is about 10 percent. The other campuses are getting up in those ranges also.
0: That's the Association of American Universities.
1: Yep. Uh, Bruce
0: Benson, before we go, do some prognosticating for me. What does higher oh. education in Colorado look like five years from now?
1: well you 're going to see a lot of changes and you 're seeing them already and let 's take online say seven or eight years ago, we had about thirty two thousand online enrollments we have fifty six thousand now Y'all look at MOOCs and massive open online courses, yeah. and we uh, now have a million six hundred some thousand online enrollments on our twenty eight MOOCs we 've got three more MOOCs that are getting ready to come online here soon. This is not the end all be all but it 's just another way. To deliver education, and another thing you get out of it is a lot of great marketing. If you got a lot of people that are taking your MOOC, they know who you are now. I think certainly, you know, I'm looking constantly at competency-based education, meaning when you've got the information down and you know it, why do you have to sit in the seat for another ten weeks or five weeks? So go take the test and. And you can get the credit. We haven't done that yet, but we're in the process of looking at it fairly seriously. So I think you're going to see a lot of different things that you can do differently at the universities uh, in this state. President Benson, thanks for being with us. Thanks a lot, Ryan.
0: Bruce Benson is president of the University of Colorado system. He spoke to me from his office. As we've been hearing, state funding for higher education in Colorado is a fraction of what it used to be. And public colleges and universities here are bracing for a day when they may get no state funding. It's a situation Stephen Jordan is well acquainted with as president of Metropolitan State University of Denver. After 12 years, he's stepping down from that role at the end of June. President Jordan, welcome to the program.
2: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here today.
0: A big picture question first off. How would you describe the state of higher education in
2: Colorado? You know, I, I think we are, um, we are hanging by a thread. Most people know we are the second lowest funded system of higher education in the country on a per capita student funding basis. And I think the big concern, quite frankly, and the one that we have to start talking about is the projection that was done by the University of Denver some years ago that says that by 2025 there will be no public funding of higher education in the state of Colorado. We are eight years from that time frame. And I don't see anything on the horizon that suggests that prediction is not going to come true.
0: So what do you think the response should look like? Asking them to come up with more funding or getting creative about where that money comes from somewhere other than the state of Colorado?
2: Yeah, I think it has to be a combination of both. I think there really does need to be a significant public policy discussion about this and and make a conscious decision about whether this is our future or not. Uh, and whether we can in some way ameliorate that projection. And I think that really begins in the legislature um, with the support of the governor to have a legislative committee spend focus time on this policy question. Second, I don't think there's any doubt that this is an issue that's going to be solved by state appropriation alone. And so I do think that institutions are going to have to be creative. I think some of the things, for instance, that we are getting a reputation nationally for around public-private partnerships and the way we've done that with hospitality, the way we're doing it with aerospace, with uh, brewing sciences, I think those are going to have to become the norm in higher education in trying to keep tuition low for students.
0: Okay, You talked about some of the examples at Metro that includes um, a Marriott property on campus that is part of your hotel management program. Say more about the brewing and um, aerospace.
2: Sure, so um, on the hotel, we just transferred two million dollars from the hotel to our foundation two two million of net profit that will go to support students and and the hospitality program on the brewing side you know we 're partnering with particularly with Tivoli we are an absolute partner with Tivoli Brewery, so they give us the location that our students have their experiential learning in. Um, we are about to invest in a series of Microbrew labs right below the Tivoli Brewery that we hope to use as sites for uh, brewery companies to come in and have us do chemical analysis and work with them actually on their product. So you get both uh, a revenue potential for that work you do for the brewing companies and you get real world experience for your students. Uh, in aerospace, You may have seen that recent announcement where we signed an agreement with York Space Systems to physically locate one of their production lines building satellites. So our students in advanced manufacturing will get the opportunity to actually be involved in advanced manufacturing and building satellites.
0: And and where is that located?
2: So that's the brand new um, Aerospace and Engineering Sciences Ah. Advanced Manufacturing building that's being built there on the corner of Auraria Parkway and and 7th Street. So,
0: President Jordan, I think that some might salivate at all those opportunities, and others might think, ew, why is there such a rapprochement between schools, which should be places that um, sort of learning happens for learning's sake, uh, and why should there be such a cozy relationship with business?
2: Well, you know, to me... um... You know you that deal has been done, and it was done um, years ago when we conceptualized the idea of the major research universities and we are doing all over the country in our most prestigious universities that trade off has already been made <laughs> with with companies uh, on behalf of whom we do major research projects. to me, the difference is this is not a deal that is going into some uniquely Um, licensable and owned property by the company, we're now actually taking it into the classroom and using it as as a way to assure that our students are better equipped to be able to move into the highly technical jobs. In many ways, that's what this election was about. It was about people being frustrated that they do not have the skills and the training to assume the thousands of jobs that are actually out there in industry today because they are so highly technical. They require people who understand uh, computing science. They require people who are capable of protecting the information that's moving through the production cycle because companies and governments can steal that information, so they require people that are skilled in cybersecurity. And interestingly enough, when we sit down and we talk with industry They want people who are critical thinkers, who have great communication skills, and who work together as teams across disciplines. So the very issue that you raise about the importance of the liberal arts what I find is that those are the very things that industry, number one, says is, are essential to the kind of workforce that they want and need today.
0: I see. So I was going to ask you about the difference between, say, the arts and the sciences. Uh, the applicability makes a lot of sense to me in physics or uh, aerospace design. It's less clear to me in English and in history. Uh, but you're saying that those are of a piece
2: so all of these things that are being produced for us, they're very technical in nature. They actually want English majors who are capable of writing those things in lay language.
0: Does that mean that eventually the sciences pay for the arts? That is the, I don't know, the, the stream of revenue coming from the assembly plant on campus is what's paying for an English teacher.
2: Well, I, I think it will supplement that um, without a doubt. Um, because to the extent that what we are doing on our curriculums are actually embedding more, more writing and other kinds of um, liberal arts courses in the upper division. Remember, we used to say, well, "Okay, we're going to get all you're going to get all your liberal arts in the general education curriculum." Well, now we're saying that doesn't work any longer. We have to actually start embedding these skills in the upper division program as well. And uh-huh. that means we'll need, we'll need liberal arts faculty in, involved in adding to that.
0: Interesting. So this might be a bringing together in some ways of arts and sciences in a way they haven't before. I want to say that, um, Metro has worked for years to attain a Hispanic-Serving Institute designation. Yes. And this means that 25% of the student population is Hispanic, and it triggers, as I understand it, millions of dollars in federal funds. Uh, I think you're scheduled to hit that threshold this fall. That's correct. Is that still on the horizon, or is there some concern that under the new administration, a program like this uh, might not stick around?
2: So uh <laughs> a great question because it's top of mind for many of us. So number 1 um The Congress is going to be working on reauthorization. I think everyone believes that right now reauthorization is going to be driven by the leadership of the House and the Senate and that the Department of Education will be a very small player in it. And everything we have heard uh, out of Washington is that while there may be no increases for uh, Hispanic-serving institutions in terms of, of gross funding or for historically black colleges and universities, that those appropriations will at least be consistent.
0: What is your pitch to a Senator Gardner, a Senator Bennett, a Representative Lamborn to maintain this program?
2: Well, um, one of the things that I think is so interesting is that Colorado is sitting here as, again, one of the most highly educated states in the country, um, largely because of net importation of people who have gotten their degrees somewhere else. Um, We rank very low on educating our own kids, and we have this huge infusion of or change in the demography of our state, with this heavy increase in people of color, particularly Hispanic uh, young people. And our economy is driven by high technology. It will be absolutely essential for our state to in order to continue to prosper, to see that these young people get into and successfully out of our colleges and universities in, in disciplines that will help drive the economy forward. And we've, we know we're about to have a very significant out-migration of of educated workforce, because so much of our educated workforce are reaching retirement age. So we've got to backfill that.
0: On a similar topic, what could changes to DACA mean for Metro? So this is the federal program that allows people brought illegally as children to the U.S. to avoid deportation. Does that affect your student body?
2: Absolutely. And let me just say, uh, you know, one of the things we are doing and is I will be distributing a letter to members of our delegation from our Board of Trustees uh, thanking Representative Kaufman for his co-sponsorship of the Bridge Act, uh, a, a bill to keep DACA students uh, here uh, legally in the country.
0: This is Mike Kaufman, uh, the
2: Republican from Aurora. This is, Mike, this is Mike Kaufman, the Republican from Aurora. So we have at MSU Denver um, about 60% of all the undocumented students in public colleges and universities in the state of Colorado. So it is really important to us. And I, I have met with numerous of these young people, many of them majoring in, in double majors, want to be contributors to, uh, to our economy uh, and to our communities. And our hope is that our members of our delegation will continue to see it that way as well.
0: Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Stephen Jordan is longtime president of MSU Denver, which serves about 20,000 students. Jordan will leave that post in June. He and Bruce Benson of CU addressed some big issues about the future of state funding for higher ed, about alliances between universities and business, and about diversity We're going to continue this discussion now with a range of voices from public colleges and universities in Colorado. Tony Frank is chancellor of the Colorado State University System. Its veterinary medicine program is consistently ranked in the top five in the United States. Tony, welcome back to the program. Good morning. Joe Garcia is president of the Western Interstate Commission for Higher Education, also known as WICHE, which is a regional collective. And you may know that name, Joe Garcia. He's the former lieutenant governor under John Hickenlooper, and he wore a second hat in that job as head of the Colorado Department of Higher Education. Joe, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Ryan. Nancy McCallan is president of the Colorado Community College System, an important voice here, which... Between its online and ground campuses, serves more than 130,000 students annually around the state. Nancy, thank you for being with us. Thank you. And from our studio on Main Street in Grand Junction, I'm welcoming Tim Foster, president of Colorado Mesa University, former executive director of the Colorado Commission on Higher Education. Tim, thanks for your time. Thank you. Joe Garcia, as the number two man in Colorado for some time. You worked with Governor Hickenlooper. Why hasn't his administration used the bully pulpits to make higher education funding a greater priority? Well, I think that he has, Ryan. And in fact, we saw significant increases
3: in the general fund allocation to higher education during his time as governor. But On the other hand, we also saw a dramatic increase in the number of students that were serving at our institutions. So the result is even though we got more money into higher ed, the institutions actually have fewer dollars per student. And that's something we need to continue to work on. But our constitutional limitations really back the governor and the legislature into a corner. I think they see the value of higher education But they just don't have the money to put more into it.
0: Yeah, Tony Frank, I'm going to ask you to sum up years of history and a cluster of complicated budgeting laws in just a few sentences. But can you explain, perhaps people who are new to the state, how Colorado came to spend so much less than it used to on higher ed? Well,
4: I'm not sure that it's just Colorado. Uh, Most of the data uh, look roughly the same, although the dollar amounts are different across all the states in the country. And certainly Nancy and Tim from their former roles in uh, Colorado government may have perspectives on this as well. But I, I think the data are really pretty clear that for America's public colleges and universities in general over the last two decades, perhaps a little bit more, Tuition has gone up at roughly the same amount, backfilling declines in, as Joe said, state support per student. In some ways, we as universities are victims of our own success with more enrollment going up even when states have been able to put more money in. That's been diluted across a larger population. But in general, um, to maintain the cost of educating a student as state funding per student has dropped, we've made it up with tuition transferring the cost of education from our entire population where we used to consider it a public good now to the individual family uh, essentially making a, a choice to make it an individual consumer commodity an individual consumer commodity say say more about that that's interesting mm-hmm. well I think there's a legit a legitimate policy debate to be had around that and and the two schools of thought um, being rhetorical because there's obviously space between them are one that Uh, Public higher education is a public good, that by creating an educated workforce and critical mass of teachers, uh, physicians, attorneys, accountants, engineers – Uh, These people make our society run. They pay taxes on higher uh, wages, and that helps uh, our entire system work. And that's a public good that we should all invest in, Uh, going back literally to when Lincoln sat in the Oval Office and started the land-grant university system. Yes, that's one school of thought. And and the other? The alternative is if my children are going to go to college and they are going to benefit with higher uh, wages based on their college-related incomes, then my children and I should pay for that. Hmm. Do you think that the country is in something of a debate with itself over those two? You know, I'm not sure um, that this is a debate we've actually had. I think huh. we have probably not effectively framed that in a way that allows people to make that choice. When At least I, I think most of us would have had the experience as we talk to people out across the state. When you when you phrase it that way, they say, well, yeah, we, we want to provide for our grandchildren what our grandparents provided to us. But I think this has been a little bit of uh, – know, the frog in the slightly increasing water. We Mm. haven't it's not been bad enough in any given year that we've had uh, really had a serious conversation about where that's headed. It's happened a little bit at a time over a long period. Uh, Nancy McAllen from Community Colleges. And uh,
0: again, you also have experience really on the, the state side of this, the budgeting side of this. Does Tabor, the Taxpayer Bill of Rights, play into the issue of state funding for colleges and universities?
5: I think there are a number of things that play into this equation, and I think it's really a, a significantly a lot of constitutional amendments where you've got one foot on the gas saying that the largest part of your budget, K 12, must increase at a certain rate, and then you've got one foot on the brake saying, no, you've got to return money to the taxpayer that's above and beyond a certain amount, although we haven't had significant taper refunds in quite some time. And to the question of have, should we have an explicit debate on this, I think there has been an implicit debate. And I think that the taxpayers and I think that the citizens have decided that this is more of a private good and that families should be paying and students should be paying for higher education. When you look at the overall state budget, when you've got K-12 on autopilot to some extent, When you have significant growth in Medicaid, where over 1 million of the state's residents that are very poor are on Medicaid, and that's about 25, 26 percent of the budget. And then you add on to that the crucial human services aspects of the budget, where it's very, very difficult to make those cuts. And then state lawmakers and policymakers look at higher education and say, you've got Another revenue stream, and that is tuition. Mm. And therefore, you must rely on that as opposed to relying upon state government.
0: Tim Foster at Colorado Mesa, I want to know if you agree that Colorado's public colleges and universities are hanging by a thread. That was the quote from Stephen Jordan at uh, Metro. Well,
6: I have the utmost respect for Steve Jordan, but I don't think we're hanging by a thread. I think it we're just being asked to reinvent ourselves and really find different ways to go about it. And I know Stephen would come back around and say exactly the same thing, as would Nancy, as would Bruce, as would, as would Tony. I mean, I think we all have found ways to to do things differently. For example, at Mesa, we don't have deans. Um, took out that middle level of management. Um You know, we do a number of things to try and control costs. We have a partnership program with the University of Colorado where um, we provide an engineering degree in Grand Junction through CU. And so rather than standing up our own engineering program, we've actually uh, sort of migrated faculty from where they would be otherwise in Boulder uh, and have them living here. We're talking with Tony about doing a bachelor's degree in ag here in Grand Junction. So I think we just are... With CSU, exactly, and so it's just a matter of trying to find ways. I think it's Stephen's uh, hotel idea. We all just no new ideas, just steal ideas. We're contemplating <laughs> doing our own campus hotel, uh, and so I just we unfortunately just have to be very, or fortunately have to be very entrepreneurial and very creative and and one and thoughtful about how we spend money and how we find other revenue sources.
0: I like this term that you use, Tim Foster, reinvention. And I'd like to have uh, our other guests speak to what reinvention looks like on your campuses. So, Tony Frank at CSU, how have you gotten creative in this
4: funding environment? Well, I think at the end of the day, Tim's exactly right. And you heard President Benson refer to pieces of this. It's, I don't think, a lot more complicated than we try and be creative about ways of decreasing expenses and increasing revenues. So on the expense side... Uh, most of us have uh, administrative expenditures that are, are far lower than national averages. That's been part of the evolutionary process. Of, and, of
0: and so when someone today says colleges and universities have way too much administration, right. you would respond that it has shrunk.
4: Well, I would say it's far below national averages, and I think the other thing that that is really important to keep in mind are when people cite statistics based on national data that show administrative expenditures going up. Part of that is uh, categorization of expenses. So when we make investments in student success programs, additional advisors, or in uh, student mental health programs or student safety programs, direct those, student support, yeah, those generally get coded as administrative expenditures. Um, and yet, I would argue those administrative expenditures decrease time to graduation, increase graduation rates. You would say that that's not bloats, in other words. Yeah. And then, uh, increasing- Everybody has this idea of administration being a group of – uh, let's face it, older white guys in suits sitting around doing things. That, that's not <laughs> where administrative expenditures are going up at Colorado's campuses. And then ex- uh, increasing revenue, how has CSU done that? Yeah, so again, you you've heard Tim talk about some of the ways, some of the different programs. Um, you heard a little bit of that from Steve as well. We're all exploring um, different majors, uh, different ways of, of increasing our enrollment around programs. Um, Bre- break some news here today. What is CSU exploring? Well, uh, we've made some investments in uh, programs around aging. Um, We've redefined uh, some of our engineering programs with a real focus, connecting uh, our uh, vet med programs into the engineering programs around biomedical engineering. Around three or four years ago, we started the first fermentation science program in the state of Colorado. Um, I, I think these are... For the most part, we look at things that matter to society. For us, that's food, water, energy, the environment, and human health. Where's the interface around that? And how do we produce people that can can have an impact on the world in those areas?
0: And potentially produce marketable goods as well sure, and technology. Course. And uh-huh. for
4: research universities, that's a big chunk of what we do. Nancy McCallan to this
0: question of reinvention, how would you answer it for community colleges in the state?
5: Well, along the same lines as both Tim and Tony, we've done a lot with new programming cutting expenses. We have had since 1994 a significant online presence. In fact we were online prior to it becoming the new sort of Um, Vogue idea. We have over 50,000 students online.
0: And that's a cheaper way to deliver education?
5: It's a different way to deliver education. Um, It's not necessarily less expensive, but it meets students where they want to be. It's much more flexible for them and it meets a certain niche for students to get their time to completion lower.
0: So you are able to reach a broader audience. You're able to enroll more students. Is that what I hear you saying? Absolutely.
5: Uh Other things we're doing are things like badging to show show businesses that an individual has a specific skill. We've added a number of programs over the years in response to business demands, like dental hygiene bachelor's degrees.
0: Badging. Say more. I don't know what that term means.
5: So that means you don't necessarily have to have the full complement of your liberal arts degree to be attractive to a business. A business wants to know that you're proficient in Microsoft or a certain type of programming language or a precision machining um, skill. So it's a badge that you can take and say and put on your LinkedIn and say, hey, this is the skill I have, and I I am proven to be competent for that business.
0: So it's very specific. It's very focused. I'm guessing that in the end it is cheaper for that student as well.
5: Absolutely. It's Uh short-term.
0: And so there's a very direct communication between the programs you develop and the needs of business. Is that a, a coziness that you like, Nancy McCallan?
5: It's not, It's not necessarily a coziness. It's a necessity. Businesses need skilled labor. Seventy-four percent of the jobs in the state of Colorado require some sort of post-secondary degree and not necessarily a four-year degree. We need to hear from businesses what they need out of their workers.
0: That's something that Stephen Jordan at Metro reflected, and he said that was really the message of this past election. What does that look like on the ground in some of the more down-and-out communities where there are community colleges, Nancy McAllen, maybe where coal jobs are disappearing or the workforce is really changing.
5: So we have 13 colleges within our system, many of them rural colleges, and they are integral to that community. Some of our colleges are the local economic development engine, creating jumpstart programs to attract businesses into the area and to provide the critical skills that those students need to get jobs in the area. For instance, we do health care. Um, We do nursing programs down in Lamar. Were it not for that program, those students would not be able to get a good paying job down there and to be able to succeed and thrive in that community.
0: Tim Foster, how would you answer that at Colorado Mesa? Because I know that the economy there has gone through expansions and contractions.
6: Well I would it would echo what Nancy's talking about and and you know I think our guys call the it certificates or chunking or whatever you want to call it and and that is you try to give people really quick pathways to employment opportunities and to create what you think uh uh the business community needs in some ways you use the old Wayne Gretzky you know iteration of trying to skate to where the puck is going to be <laughs> uh, and try to anticipate what those needs are going to be That's and, and in some ways, you use the liberal arts uh, to fill some of that void and say, you know, if you have well-educated people who are smart and can think creatively and and work in groups and communicate well, uh, that works as well. Um, it's just, it's all of the things you're hearing. I think it's it's how do you, you know, we, for example, look to our city and county who help us pay for an academic building. They give us three quarters of a million dollars uh, every year to, to pay debt down on one of our academic buildings. And so we we sort of go, um, as as I think Dillinger said, you go wherever the money is, right? Um, And so we are always looking for opportunities, as are all my colleagues. How do you find places to go to find programs that you can stand up, and how do you underwrite those programs and make them effective? Um, We're going to add a physician assistant program. We're going to add an occupational therapist program. But so, what people don't understand is that every time you stand up a program, it's like standing up a small business. It will lose money at the outset, and it takes time for it to then cover its expenses. And so we're always trying to find those opportunities and then be judicious and then try not to pick any losers.
0: Fascinating. So it's a question of being nimble. It's a question of, as as you say, almost predicting what the market might need and hoping you're in the right place when the puck arrives Uh, Joe Garcia at WICHE, again, that's the Western Interstate Commission for Higher Education. You have a view of a lot of schools that are a part of that interstate uh, sort of compact. What are you seeing in in terms of reinvention in the face of dwindling state support? Well, it's
3: not just dwindling state support. It's a dwindling supply of high school graduates. And so... Tim and and, uh, everybody has talked about reinvention and bringing an entrepreneurial approach, which they need to do and they are doing here in Colorado. They're doing an excellent job. So that's the good side of this budget crisis. It's forced people to be entrepreneurial and we want our students to be entrepreneurial. But the bad side is also forcing them to compete with each other for those full pay students. Is, is this is why you rare. get
0: climbing walls in schools and gourmet food
3: courts and things. That's exactly right. I mean, part of the reason that education costs more is because full pay students want it to. They want certain things. Uh, and the institutions want those full pay and non resident students. And there's a decreasing supply of them. And they need them in order to help subsidize the service they provide to the low income and first generation students who are an increasingly larger percentage of the student population. We're seeing nationally a dramatic decrease in the number of white high school graduates. It's going to be a quarter million fewer in the next several years. And why is that? Just lower birth rates, okay? And frankly. But we're also have seen an increasing, uh, offsetting population growth among our Latino student population. That's going to be in place until about 2025, and then that's going to drop off too. There are simply going to be fewer high school graduates to market to. And so all of the institutions are going to have to find a way to serve more non-traditional and adult students. We're so tuition-driven because the state has uh, cut back on funding. So institutions chase tuition revenue. They have to. And so they're all competing with each other to have attractive programs, climbing walls, buffalo-shaped swimming pools, whatever it takes to attract (laughs) those full-pay students. Is the buffalo-shaped
0: Swimming pool at CU. It is. It is. Okay. I've not. I've not swum in it. I think that's the right conjugation of swim. Okay. Um, from from CSU, Tony Frank. Do you feel that pressure? That the, to compete to have the the newest thing. Maybe it's a stadium, for instance,
4: <laughs> which of course uh, there there is one under construction on campus. I think I'm required by some law to, every time I hear the word stadium, to say that it is on time and on budget, so I'll get that said. <laughs> So, yeah, we're, I mean, Joe is exactly right. We're, we're all competing for students, particularly um, non-resident students, international students, but all of those are part of this full-pay student um, model as well. Again, because the international and, and out-of-state students pay higher tuition. Yeah, of course, and that helps us uh, maintain costs around our Colorado students and whatnot. There's another side of that as well, which is the increased investment all of us have made in institutional financial aid. So, for example, while we talk about the tremendous increases in costs that have, uh-huh. have gone up for Uh, tuition uh, over the last so many years. It's also true, we could say at CSU, and and I think almost all of us around this table could make similar comments, that for low-income students, in our case, it's Pell-eligible, so roughly adjusted family incomes of of $33,000 a year or less, there has been no tuition increase in the last nine years. In fact, those students have not paid tuition or fees for the last nine years because uh, of financial aid programs that we have. So we've got a very complicated mixture of things where we have full-pay students on the high end paying a higher cost, and we have tremendous financial aid programs really doing a nice job on the low end. And in between are places where we're really having uh, pressure points, where we're trying to come up with financial aid models that allow middle-income families to deal with increasing tuition when they're not eligible for some of the tremendous uh, financial aid programs that we've put together around lower-income students. Almost Mm -hmm. a donut hole there. Absolutely. And and
3: Ryan, let me point out that for some institutions – they serve a much higher proportion of full-pay and higher-income students. At right. The community colleges at Metro State, even at Mesa, uh, they don't have enough wealthy students to really subsidize all the low-income students that we ask them to serve. And yes, in a place like CSU that's so close to the Wyoming state line, in Wyoming, they fund their students at about $15,000 per FTE. In Colorado, it's less than And so it's really hard to keep those students, even Colorado students, in Colorado, and they can cross the state lines and sometimes get an education at a
0: lower cost. Nancy from Community Colleges, Nancy McAllen.
5: Well, and I want to add, so about half of our students are very, very poor, and they are eligible for the Pell Grant. And as a result, the model that you see working at, say, a CSU or a CU, as the lieutenant governor said, where you can have full-pay students subsidize low-income students, does not happen with us. And I feel we all not just within the four-year institutions, but the two-year as well, feel the pressure on enrollment. Because nationally, with the exception of seven states, you've seen the traditional student decrease because of demographics. However, I want to point out that this is an opportunity for partnership, too. And we have partnered, for instance, with the Douglas County School District, Arapahoe Community College, and CSU to bring new services to Douglas County in the form of a new campus down at Arapahoe Community College.
0: So that, what, you could be earning college credits while you're in high school? Is that the point? Absolutely. One
5: of the big increases in productivity – two of the big increases in productivity – throughout the state for higher education is concurrent enrollment where we in the community colleges provide college-level credit for qualified students in high school at the cost to the school districts, so the parents pay nothing. That saves students and their families about $21 million per year. That partnership is in place and then we also have partnerships that have evolved as required by state law to have transfer. So a student goes their first two years to the community colleges and within 34 different um transfer majors, they can transfer those courses directly to a four-year institution. And
0: thus save money is Significant, part of it.
5: Significant. $20,000 a year.
0: You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and Colorado spends just a fraction of what it used to on higher education. It's perhaps no coincidence then that tuition rises as a result, and we're talking about the state of higher ed here and its future with leaders from CSU, Colorado Mesa. Community colleges, and with the former Lieutenant Governor Joe Garcia, who also led the Colorado Department of Higher Education. He's now with WICHE, the Western Interstate Commission for Higher Education. It's a lot of words there. Uh, so, just uh, quickly to you, Tony Frank at CSU on the question of the the, uh, the stadium and on athletics. Uh, CSU is in the Mountain West Conference and was part of a highly publicized flirtation between about a half a dozen schools in the Big
4: Twelve Conference. What was the university's thinking in throwing your hat into that ring? Well, so there's probably about three points to make on that. One is that we are a member of the Mountain West Conference, have been since its inception, yeah. and are, are are proud of the rivalries and associations we have there. Um, But once that's said, uh, our statistics, our vital signs, if you will, our enrollments, our research funding, our philanthropic funding, we're right about at the, the median, right about at the average of where the, quote, power five, close quote, conference schools are. So we have a lot of similarities with schools of that nature. And one of the main attractive points of looking at a larger conference last year, our television distribution from the Mountain West was somewhere in the vicinity of about $3 million. And in the Big 12, as an example, the annual television distribution per school was about $30 million. So one can look at uh, a distribution like that, deal with the increased expenditures that would come from a Power 5 conference and still – uh, look at perhaps um, returning our the funds that we put out of the general fund to subsidize our athletic program back into academics, uh, which would be an, an important goal for us. Mm. So again, that
0: interplay between athletics and academics and the fact that that might strengthen into the future. Tim Foster at Colorado Mesa, your athletic team plays on the NCAA's Division II level although some say your nationally ranked baseball team could play against anyone. Uh, Quickly, do a cost-benefit analysis on the idea of moving that team up to Division
6: I. Well, I think the cost-benefit analysis would be that's not something that we subscribe to. I love Division I sports. I'd love to watch them, CSU, CU, great rivalries. But we really subscribe to what we think is the true meaning of athletics, which is that student-athlete um, and and emphasizing uh, those kind of interactions and and really talking about time in the classroom um, and making sure that you know the students we get and, and and it really plays to this issue that we were just talking about, which is you know how do you attract students? How do you get students to come? How do you get students to retain? How do you get students to to graduate? How do you get students who are first generation? And, and sports is very compelling for a lot of different students. And it teaches them all the same lessons that you want them to teach, learn in the classroom. Work ethic, uh, overcoming adversity, teamwork, you know, uh, thinking quickly on their feet. And and then it, it increases the diversity on our campuses. On our soccer team, we have two uh, student athletes from Israel and one from Egypt. And so you start to bridge some of those cultural gaps uh, that you see elsewhere. And, and it just, it's a it is a, I think, kind of more true to the NCAA experience at the Division two, II, Division three levels. And mm. so um, we would much prefer, and I, and I will tell you, we have student-athletes at the Division two level that are as talented as you'll see on any of the other campuses. They could choose to play at the Division one level, but they choose, I think the mantra in Division two is life in the balance and, and trying to limit the amount of time that they have to spend on athletics, but... I want what? to digress and go back to something you were just talking about. Right? Yes, very briefly. Comp- very briefly, please. Comp- real, I will try. Competition, and in reality, this this having to recruit, it's a positive. We are a country built on competition, and think about the fact that we have to go recruit students, and we have to, heaven forbid, we have to go recruit students who are first generation. We have to get them from out of state. We have to get them from other countries, and guess what? That benefits every student on our campuses, and so at Mesa, we say, bring it on. Let's compete. We love that sharp edge of competition,
0: which we think makes us better. President Trump has tapped the head of Liberty University, Jerry Falwell Jr., to lead a task force on higher education, which will deal with, quote, overregulation and micromanagement of higher education. Joe Garcia, from your uh, viewpoint over many campuses in the West, what would you most like to see from this new administration? Well, first, a recognition of the value
3: of what our public institutions of higher education provide. I think it really is critically important that we are producing not just STEM graduates, but liberal arts graduates, that we're producing not just bachelor's degrees, but also associate's degrees and certificates. We have to recognize there's a wide variety of folks who can contribute to our economy, and our public institutions are the primary providers of those graduates.
0: Have you heard that from this administration?
3: I have not heard that from this administration. I think the focus has been on uh, private institutions. We do worry about, and by private, I mean for-profit institutions. We have seen those um, roll back in recent years. I think there's a sense that we may see uh, them revitalized by policies uh, Uh, put in place by the new administration. That hasn't happened yet, but that's what we are watching
0: for. I'm curious from your standpoint at CSU, Tony Frank, if the travel ban, for instance, and some of the talk about immigration might affect foreign students and uh, international students and their ability to get into the country and to perhaps
4: support CSU with that, that tuition they're paying. Well, I think across the country, um, many universities are worried about declines in international enrollment. Now we'll have to to wait and see what winds up being real about that and, and how persistent that is. I think the other thing that research universities in particular are paying attention to are what happens around the federal R&D budgets. Those are... Research and development. Exactly. Uh, For CSU, that's uh, the the second largest piece of our budget falling just behind tuition. Because Um, it it appears that uh, other than in the military, there's going to be a contraction in federal spending. It would be hard to envision cutting $10 trillion from the budget without um, getting into the R&D budgets. All right. Uh, I wonder, and, if Nancy, go, go ahead. And
5: I would say on the federal front, we're looking at three major things. One is preservation of the Pell Program which is significant for our students. The second is we have significant regulations that were intended to hit the for-profits that hit community colleges that I am hoping to see go away. And third, with respect to our DACA students, we need to preserve their ability to get their education. Well, I want to
0: thank you all for being with us and giving us higher ed perspectives from across the state. Tony Frank, Chancellor of the Colorado State University System Tim Foster, who leads Colorado Mesa University. He joined us from our studio on Main Street in Grand Junction. Nancy McCallan is head of the Colorado Community College System. And former Lieutenant Governor Joe Garcia now heads the Western Interstate Commission for Higher Education, or WICHE. And earlier, we were joined by Bruce Benson of CU and Stephen Jordan, who is soon to retire as president of Metropolitan State University of Denver. You can join the conversation through Twitter at Colorado Matters. Email us your thoughts. What did you hear? What would you like still answered? News at CPR.org. With producer Anthony Cotton, I'm Ryan Warner. Colorado Matters.